I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, our guest sharing the inside story of his working day is Pete Brown. He's got, I, I think, I honestly think, uh, one of the best jobs in the world. Uh, he's been British Beer Writer of the Year three times. He's won three Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards. He is the chair of the British Guild of Beer Writers. He's a beer writer, a food and drink writer, I think, to do him real justice. Now, we mainly chat in this episode about his newest book, Pie Fidelity. Love the name. Uh, it's an exploration of British food culture. We talk about why he felt compelled to write it, to uh, right the wrongs that so many feel about food that's from the UK. We also talk about how his writing routine and the process of telling a story for him has changed over the years. And, and we find out how now he very much enjoys the writing voice. And, and the part where he actually puts the words onto the page in as descriptive a way as he can. That's the aspect of writing that's really surprised me. Uh, when a rope man walks into a pub, which I struggle to read these days if I, if I pick it up, I'm so embarrassed by it. Um, and I thought, well, I'm writing this because I'm a fluent writer. I can put words together in the right order. I'm an engaging, readable writer. My, my prose style is quite simple. But I'm never going to be a writer-writer. Um and then around the time of uh, Hops and Glory, my pro stats become a lot more lyrical because just the things I saw were were amazing and I was looking for words to help describe them. And the biggest surprise for me has been my development, the development of my tone of voice. Because uh, it's still simple and readable. People still say to me, oh, reading your book is just like talking to you. It's like, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> you know, transcribe my speech and you'll see how different <laughs> it is. But it's good that people think that. So stick around more on the way with the fantastic Pete Brown this week in Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. Thank you so much for listening. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful writers to see how they get stuff done, how they get their ideas from their head onto the page and plan their day around that. This week, our guest is Pete Brown. As I said, he's a beer writer. I mean, come on. <laughs> come on. 
one of the best jobs I could honestly imagine. Like writing, actually being paid to write about food and drink and explore what there is out there. I mean, to be honest, calling him a beer writer is a little bit of a disservice. He's got a a brilliant knack of finding historical and social connections in how he writes about booze. And I think it's really worthwhile on the show uh, to help the way that we work to chat to all sorts of the different writers that there are, to stray from fiction to other more unique aspects of writing to learn from their day. Now, we talk about his newest book, Pie Fidelity, uh, also about Shakespeare's Local, which is the story that got me into Pete's writing. It's history uh, seen through the eye of one pub on the river in London. And and we talk about the, the moment that he got the first initial idea for that book. And we also chat about his very first book. It's Man Walks Into a Pub. And we do something that I very rarely... Uh, do on this show, uh, we actually tell the story of how Pete became a writer. Normally, I'll be honest, I'm not really that bothered about that side of things. I prefer focusing on the process of one particular novel. But I think with with Pete, it's quite fascinating how he ended up doing what he does for a living. It's not like when you leave school, you think, I'm going to become a beer writer. A lot of different things have to fall in place for that to happen. So we'll talk to Pete about how he made it work. Also, we'll find out how he stumbled across the Pomodoro technique, uh, why the the planning of his work through the years has been affected directly by analysis that he has done himself. Uh, Before we get into it, I've got two warnings. One... There is a little bit of fruity language in there, so just be aware if you're listening in the car with kids or whatever. Uh, And also, warning too, um, because I'm so amazed by Pete's job, uh, and I do read his stuff quite a lot, uh, I got a little bit fanboy-y. Not too fanboy-y. Don't be put off. Just a a little bit. But I think it's all a good thing. I, I think it's fine to be fascinated by someone who is so passionate about something and knows so much about the history of how that thing came to be. I think it's a really brilliant chat. I hope you stick around. And and we start, as always, uh, with what Pete Brown sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. And for this one, I was actually there with him recording in his writing room. So I'm in my study in my house. Uh, my commuters walk down 12 steps from the bedroom. Uh, I've got uh, a desk with uh, an overflowing in tray and a big notice board behind it. And uh, on behind me, a massive shelf full of books, uh, most of them about, about beer and pubs. It's very rare that I get the chance to actually sit in the place where people sit down to write. Usually right. we're squirreled away in a publisher's office or something. And what I can notice to my right, which is behind you, which is interesting, you've got a whole whole wall uh, filled with different coloured post-it notes. Yes. Can you just tell us what's on them, why they're different colours, wh- what it's all about? Yeah, so this is a book I'm writing. This is a my current work in progress, which is a total vanity project. Um, when I write books at the moment uh, with big publishers, we're always obviously thinking about commercials and things like that, as well as what I'd like to write. Uh, and this is a book that I'm writing between the gaps, um, which is just something I really want to write. And it's a book about the notion of craft, obviously coming from that's it from a beer point of view, but uh, exploring the broader notion of craft uh, and, and its thousand year history and the arts and crafts movement, uh, the difference between craft, art, and design, uh, the motivations of craftspeople, uh, the whole thing about um, 
knowledge, different types of knowledge, like uh, the, the innate knowledge of someone who works with a material versus the learned knowledge of an intellectual and that kind of stuff. So trying to apply all these big concepts and then back to craft beer and go, what does this tell us about craft beer? And so I'm well into it now, and I've, I've planned I've, I've, I've planned books this way since I wrote my fourth book, Shakespeare's Local, um, because when my writing works best, it weaves together lots of different strands. Um, you know, there, there's there's all, all, there's usually a strand of my personal experience, my my travelogue, my journey, if you like. Uh, there's obviously always a big part of historical context. Uh, there might be some other academic writing around the subjects that I want to engage in. Um, and what it is, is that a good chapter for me has elements of all those things. So the different coloured post-its represent uh, different threads. So yellow is any big controversial ideas I've had while I've been reading. Um, the dark pink is stuff about the brewing industry and the craft brewing industry. Uh, orange is the history of craft as a concept and so on. So while I'm reading, while I'm making notes, while I'm thinking, uh, every note, every insight, everything I get goes on to post-it note like that. I'm enjoying looking at some of the controversial ones on the yellow. Craft is selfish. Yes. Which I like that. Um, although you've got the different colours, is there a an order as to why they are placed the way where they are not yet what happens when i when i've got when i've got all my thinking up on the wall and it's just each one is like it might be a paragraph it might be a page it might be a few pages whatever uh what i then start to do to plan the structure of the book is then move those post-its around and start to put the ones that belong together into groups and and that's how the narrative thread of the book evolves uh so there's a lot of stuff on there for example about um uh, the arts and crafts movement uh, and the politics behind that and why it ultimately failed uh, and the and the similarities between that and the craft beer movement today. And so everything that's to do with that might coalesce into a group and hopefully that group will have all the different colours within it, which shows it's a very multifaceted chapter. And eventually, once I've finished, there'll be maybe between five and seven clusters up there and that will be my chapter and then I'll put them in order in neat little lines and then there's the structure of the book. Before we clicked record, you were telling me how you got into this. Now, I said we wouldn't cover the whole thing, but I just thought I would really touch upon the fact that you have a, you know, an incredible job. Um, yeah. And it all stemmed from you not managing to write a fiction book. Yes. Can I just, you're an incredibly successful non-fiction writer, British Beer Writer of the Year three times. What was it about writing fiction that didn't quite work out for you? I think I, I, I couldn't have answered that. <laughs> when I was trying to write it, because I thought I was going to write something amazing. Uh, and in retrospect, what it is, and and this is maybe, if I had, if I was independently wealthy, I could probably work on this. Um, but I can spot a great story from a mile away. And um, once I've spotted that story, once I've unearthed it, I can tell that story in an engaging way uh, with offshoots and tangents and a, and a clear narrative thread. I cannot come up with that story on my own I simply can't uh, I've had an idea for a novel sitting in my head for about the past five years and I know it's good because the main character is not like me in any way <laughs> you know everyone's everyone's you know a novel's a failure when it's you in disguise as the, as the main protagonist because you're working through some issues and this guy is not me is nothing like me uh, I know what he eats I know what he watches on tv I know what he looks like I know what he does I know his history and it's like he's standing in a closet and I can't animate him. I can't make him move. 
Uh, I don't know what he does next. I don't know how. I don't know what he does on page one. I don't know what he does between page one and the final page of the novel. I simply can't assign a plot to this character. Whereas when I write nonfiction, the story is already there. And all I've got to do is put some style on it, tell it in a way that no one's told it before, link it to things that people haven't linked it to before, and I and I find that a lot easier. Do you think there'll ever be something which might open the closet for you, so you know what this guy is going to do? Do you, that kick up? The I don't know. That you need. He's been standing there for five years now, <laughs> and I and I read and I know some novelists, and I know I've, I've read a lot. Obviously, I've read a lot about how to write fiction, and I know there are exercises you can do. And I know some of my favourite novelists will just start writing and see what he does. Um, you know, uh, he's walking down a street and some random person comes up to him and the thing happens and, and that might be the, the key. I know, I know several thriller and mystery writers and, you know, halfway through the book, they don't know who's done it. <laughs> they, they don't know uh, how it's going to end and they just kind of wait and the characters drive them along. So I know that if I was to ask anyone for help, I'm pretty sure that's what they would tell me. Um but it's a confidence thing. Uh, my writing in nonfiction improved in exact step, lockstep, with my confidence as a writer. It's like, I'm going to try this now, I'm going to try this now. And I just don't have the confidence in nonfiction. Sorry, I don't have the confidence in, in fiction yet uh, to attempt it. And I also don't have the time. So I used to work in advertising. And, uh, and by the way, this whole kind of mental mapping process here is very much kind of drawn from advertising strategy and that kind of stuff. I, it's, it's a very strategic approach. Um, and I, I liked advertising because it, it, it teaches you how to think for yourself. Um, if, you can't, if you can't think for yourself to start with, you're not going to succeed in the job that I was doing, but kind of uh, advertising strategy. Um, and my job was in, involved understanding people and what makes them work. So you can immediately see the link from there to writing. And a lot of advertising people do become writers. And um, I was working on beer, which I loved. And I felt a connection with the beer market that I hadn't felt with washing powder, for example, <laughs> curiously enough. So one of the things I used to do was focus groups, which is amazing because you sit behind a, a two-way mirror and watch people talking about ideas and concepts and about their lives and about what, what interests them, what motivates them. And I noticed when people did that with beer, they were you know, people either lean back or they lean forward. And and people were leaning forward in a beer discussion more than I'd seen them for anything else. I mean, even when you're talking about car, talking to blokes about cars or f- even football or something, they seem more engaged about talking about their their favourite beer brands than anything else. And I thought, why is that? And so I went to look for a book that would give me some kind of social and cultural history around beer and pubs. And none of the books on beer I could find were telling that story. They were saying, here are the 100 best real ales in the world, or here's an encyclopedia of beer, or here's how beer is made. All which have a place, but it wasn't the book I was looking for. And then one day I was sitting there, the 12th of September 1998, I was sitting there going, why can't I find this book? And I found a book in America about the American beer market that was very similar to what I wanted to read. I was going, why hasn't anyone done this for the UK? And then I thought, no one's done this for the UK. I'll do it. And I had the knowledge from advertising, I had the insight. And and it was going to be a book about modern beer marketing with a, an introductory chapter on the history of beer. And then that introductory chapter became two chapters. Then it became three chapters. And then it became the entire book with one chapter on the modern marketing of beer <laughs> tacked on at the end. Because what I'm talking about with uncovering stories, I would be, I'd be sitting reading big weighty tomes in the British Library and you'd get something like, uh, you know, in... 
1810, the price of hops was this much per bushel. In 1812, the price of hops was this much per bushel. In 1815, a massive tank of beer exploded in the middle of London and sent a tidal wave of porter down Oxford Street. What? In 1816, the price of beer was... And I, was, and I would pan out all those interesting stories that were buried in all this detail. Uh, and it, this storytelling knack took over, and I thought, well, that's the important thing here. And linking together all these stories about how how the history of beer was the history of ordinary British people, not kings or queens or, or generals, but people in the street. That beer, You couldn't tell their story without telling the story of beer. And so that's what the first book was. And I remember being interviewed by it after it came out and someone said, your love of beer is apparent, but where did your love of history come from? And I said, well, I've got a love of history. And then I thought about the book and went, oh, God, yeah. Oh, well, I guess the love of history came from writing this book. So... Uh, it kind of set me on that path, really. Just to take you back to this thing to my right, which is your wall that's full of post-it notes. You mentioned that you started doing this when you wrote Shakespeare's Local. Yeah. That is a whole book uh, telling the story of history through the eyes of a pub. The Georgian yeah. Yeah, in, 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 in yeah. London Bridge. Why did you start doing this for that book? What changed between the one before it and Shakespeare's Local that forced your hand here? Uh, I think I think the two books before that had a very, very straight narrative. The book I wrote before that was Hops and Glory, which was the story of my journey to India with a, a barrel of IPA um, by sea. <laughs> so I was, I was taking IPA on its traditional sea voyage for the first time in 140 years. And, and so the path of that book was very clear. I pick up the barrel of beer in Burton-on-Trent, I get on a boat, I go on several different boats, I have various mishaps, I arrive in India, we open the beer, the end. You know, so it was a very, very straightforward narrative. And with Shakespeare's Local, you could sort of think, well, the, when, I, when I started writing that, the straightforward narrative of the pub itself was about 3,000 words long. You know, the pub was probably built around this time. It burnt down in this year. It was rebuilt here. Uh, it was taken over by so-and-so here. And here it is in the present day. And it's like, well, the narrative history of this pub is really... That's not the book. The the, the story is what went on around the the pub. And there's all its literary links. Uh, I was having to learn a whole bunch of new stuff I hadn't ever learned before about architecture. Uh, so I could talk about why the pub looked the way it did and how that changed over the years looking at things like carbon dating wooden beams and, and stuff like that. Um, there was the history of Borough itself, because, you know, the pub is like this constant fixed point uh, in a in a district which has just changed beyond recognition time and time and time again, because that's what happens in London. It's like layers and layers of, of history just on top of each other. So so a lot there was a lot of... It ended up with a lot of different facets in it, Um and I thought, well, how do I pull this all together? And so that's where I started this idea of like, right, one colour post-it for literary uh, connections, one colour post-it for the architecture and the bricks and mortar of the pub, and, and, and so on. And it's like, right, each chapter's got to have a mix of all these things. Because um, when I wrote my first... Actually, it was after my first draft. My first draft, uh, my wife read the first three chapters and came in in tears saying, this is the best thing you've ever written. I absolutely love it. And then I gave her the next three chapters and she said, I can't read this. It's unreadable. It's it's a total mess. Because I'd gone from being, I'd gone from sort of some fairly kind of high vaulting. I talked about confidence earlier. And, and I took some risks in the first three chapters. 
and showed off basically as a writer. I was I was trying things. I thought this is either going to be rubbish or it's going to be great. Let's just see what happens. And then after then after the pyrotechnics, I then got down into right. This was the building style of of popular buildings in this era and da, da 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 and so it just completely changed from one style to the next after three chapters and it went from being funny and broad-ranging to being incredibly dense and detailed and I thought that doesn't work there needs to be a bit of everything in each chapter it needs to be a bit smoother than that so there's there's always a joke waiting for you at the end of reading something about architectural dimensions and, and things like that I think every writer eventually finds their time of day and it varies massively. And for me, my key time is between 8 a.m. and noon. Um, if I don't get a good slog in in that time period, I've, I've lost the day, basically. So when I'm working on a piece of writing, I like to be up as early as I can. Uh, I like to be at my desk sometime between 7 and 8. And then I found that uh, real discipline works in terms of timing and allocation. So I'm quite anal about it. And I, th I think the more disorganized and flighty you are, the more structure you have to put in to kind of bring you back. So it's not that I'm a very anal person. It's that this is what I have to do in order to get the most out of myself. So um, I found there was this study of lots of different types of habits for effectiveness. Um, and they looked at all these different crappy books that you find W.H. Smith's about management effectiveness and stuff. And the one constant principle was if you divide your time up into 25-minute segments and then force yourself to take a break then you're more productive than if you do anything else. So I set a timer on my iPhone, 25, so 8 o'clock, like 25 minutes. And when the, when the alarm goes off, if I'm in the middle of a sentence, if I've had the greatest thought I've ever had, I stop. Go and make myself a cup of tea, tidy something up, come back 5, 10 minutes later, set another 25 minutes. And the focus that that gives me is incredible. Um, by the time I get to 12, midday, 1 o'clock... The result of that incredible long period of great focus means I'm absolutely knackered. And then I'm useless for anything after that. And so when I'm smack in the middle of a book, that's the useful writing time gone by lunchtime. The afternoon will be maybe doing some reading. Um, if I'm if I'm far on in a book, it'll be kind of reading over drafts of what I've written and correcting them. If I'm a bit earlier in the book, it'll be reading some of the source material Um I, I tend to kind of start and go wild off in all different tangents. Um, oh, this reminds me a little bit of that. Oh, this reminds me a bit. Maybe I could bring in a little bit of postmodernism here. Maybe I could go and kind of go and talk about uh, the, the the changing lineup of the sugar babes in relation to buildings <laughs> and things like that. Um, and and so I'll I'll go off and do all that reading in the afternoon. Have a break. Have a nice long walk. Uh, I love walking for the um, for the mental kind of sorting that happens you know if you if you've if you've been dealing with a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts and getting a lot of stuff down for a few hours going for an hour's walk especially at this time of year when it's cold and you feel it slap onto your face um everything just gets sorted out and put in the right place in your head and if i'm having trouble getting over a particular piece of writing if i think i don't know quite how to handle this i can't unravel this particular knot in the narrative uh, if I'm out on a walk, halfway through the walk, it'll just happen and sort itself out in my in my back brain, um, and that and that'll be it normally. But what I what I then do at the start of the finish of a book is do a writing retreat somewhere on the coast um, on my own, uh, and I take that discipline even further and just make it 
uh, you know, back when we were doing A levels and degree exams, everyone had multicolored sheets of revision timetables, and you'd spend longer putting your timetable together than you'd actually <laughs> do any work. And it gets a bit like that for me writing a book. And if I'm on my own on a retreat doing that, then the evening will be going to a pub uh, with a with a pile of uh, manuscript or, or a book and reading and planning what I'm going to write the next day. And so it'll be a kind of round-the-clock exercise at that point. That's amazing that you get away with that. <laughs> I'm going to escape to... No, I am doing research. I am, I'm just going to escape to the pub every night. That's that's quite tremendous. Um, So in the evenings, while you are still writing, when you've had your walk, you've let things process, you've wriggled free any problems and kinks that you had... Um, is that it? Are you are you still thinking? Are you still making notes? How does it end f- for the day for you? Are you not happy till you've got a certain amount of words done? Um, I tr- I always I I do measure it not as obsessively as I used to. Um, uh, it, it is. I think I think you have to measure progress by word count actually. Um, and it's quite funny. I'll 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 do the first I'll do the first twenty thousand words incredibly quickly because that'll be often kind of getting the whole structure down getting the whole thing uh lined up and i think oh yeah this is going really really well and i've probably got a i've probably got a word target somewhere between uh 80 and 100,000 words for the book and i think oh this is great you know and then if i go on a writing retreat and i'm and i'm really sticking to that discipline i can write three three and a half thousand words a day uh every day and you really see it piling up but then we get to the middle of it and you're measuring this word count and you're going right Okay, there's the end. There's the there's the beginning. There's the end. Here's what I've got to do, and you'll sit there for a couple of weeks doing three thousand words a day, three thousand words a day, and at the end of the day, you'll go, "I'm no closer to the finish than I was at the start." And after a couple of weeks of that, you start to go a bit mad, and you're going, "I'm writing and writing and writing all these words, and I'm not getting closer to the end of the book. What's happening here?" And then as you get close to the end, then it picks up again. And when I do my retreat, when a book's nearly finished, I can write 40,000 words in 10 days uh, and just get it all done. And then, it, you know, obviously it needs a ton of editing after that. Um, but it's it's just kind of a... I, I do think... I, I do compare it to running a marathon, you know, uh, and, and the way that that is... A, I, I say this from watching people who run marathons <laughs> but but you know when, when you look at long distance runner athletes uh it's it's more about the mental game than it is about uh your physical uh fitness and i think writing writing a book is like that it's about the stamina of being able to do it day after day after day when you feel like you're not getting any further through the process um and having this overarching strategy going no this is fine if i keep doing this i will get to the end uh and then just not breaking down in the middle uh you know because it is a it, there's a point where you've got the whole thing in your head and there's no room for anything else and someone asks you what you want for your tea and the whole thing comes crashing down <laughs> you know you think i've lost it now i can't re- <laughs> i can't remember what i'm writing about anymore because it just takes up your entire brain and so it's just this kind of it is the mental discipline of it which i think i've i've become obsessed on is there anything else aside from the walking is there anything else, a little quirk, something that you think might be individual to you that helps you every day just to get your story down? Do you like a cup of tea at 11 o'clock or something, you know, really niche? Um, there's one thing that I know is not unique to me, but I've got my own version of it. Uh, I can remember when the His Dark Materials trilogy came out, reading it into with Philip Pullman 
And this this kind of conversation, where it's like, well, I go to my shed every morning and I only write uh, with this particular pen on a uh, American style yellow legal pad, and that's how I do my writing. I thought, what a pretentious twat! <laughs> um, and I find myself now, fifteen years later, I will only ever write with Uniball uh, eye pens, and not just the fine one; it has to be the micro one. Uh, this pen, no other pen, and I have to have a moleskin notebook. Um, and I have to have my particular uh, structure with that. Otherwise, I can't do it. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm out in the field, when I'm making notes, you know, when I'm traveling and doing things like that, if someone says, if someone gives me a notebook, I'm like, fuck off. You know, <laughs> I, no, no, I, I need a moleskin. And if I fill my moleskin when you're sort of in the middle of Prague or something like that on a brewery visit, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. What's going to happen now? <laughs> I, I need, need to go home I, now. I, I, need, I, need a, I need another moleskin before I can carry on work. So I, th- I think all writers have, that, have a version of that. <laughs> But uh, but that's my one. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll get back into it with Pete in just a sec. First, it's my weekly call for a little bit of help. If you're enjoying the show, the wide range of authors and writers that we are bringing to you, uh, if any of the tips that you've heard from the over 90 episodes have made any difference to the way you plan your day and tell your stories, please do let us know by giving a little bit back over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a couple of dollars a month really help us carry on, help us help us continue to bring you as many episodes as we can as frequently as possible with some of the best writers that I can manage to get out there and see. Uh, you get a little bit of thanks for you saying thanks, uh, some merges in there, badges, bookmarks, that kind of stuff. Uh, and you just get to know that you're helping out what I think is obviously the world's greatest writing podcast. I hope you feel the same way too. Uh, just let us know, pay back what you can. Just a dollar or so a month, anything really helps. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. There are other ways that you can get involved as well by retweeting and having a chat with me over on Twitter. Follow us, it's at writers pod there. Also, I've slightly spruced up the website. Now, I've not gone miles away. I've not gone really, really far with this. It's just I learned the, the words search. Oh, God, be prepared to be bored. I've heard the words search engine optimization 
uh, about a billion times over the last week. So I'm really pushing ahead with that over on the website. I'd like to know what you think. I think I've made it a little bit easier for you to find what you want. It's a working progress, though, so do bear with it. But but let me know what you think. There's a contact form on there too. Click on it. It's writersroutine.com. And also uh, leave a review for the show over on Apple Podcasts. That really helps everything. Right, now I'm done being a beg. Let's get back to it with our guest on this week's Writers Routine, Pete Brown. Uh, he is, he's been British Beer Writer of the Year three times, a fantastic historical and social commentator. We're chatting mostly about his newest book, Pie Fidelity. This half of the show is quite British. I don't mean that to put you off. Um, and it's fantastically British. It's about British food. And it's, it's about Only Fools and Horses. It's about the sugar babes. And we hear why Pete is so passionate about those things and why he wanted to show that through his writing. We also talk about research in this half of the show and figure out exactly how he knows what to look for in all the books that he ends up trawling through while writing. And we pick things up talking about ideas. He constantly has new ones pop into his head. So how does he decide what he's going to work on next? That's the hardest part. That is absolutely the hardest part of the whole thing. And that's where I'm I'm in that process at the moment. Um, because if you were to kind of gift wrap me a subject area, and so, uh, which is actually what happened with Shakespeare's local. My editor said, we should tell the history we should do a social history through one pub, don't you think? And I said, yes, and I went to choose the pub. That's a fantastic idea, isn't it? It really is. You need to... You need to I hope you've never stopped thanking that editor. No, exactly. <laughs> Just, what, a, what a pitch line that and so is. That's perfect. So if he, if he gives me that idea, so the, the, the social history of several centuries using one pub as its focus, I'm like, right, fine, got it, and yeah. I can just go away and I can do it. Getting that idea in the first place is awful sometimes sometimes it just comes to me uh hops and glory i'm going to recreate the voyage of india pale ale literally so many people say this who write the kind of narrative non-fiction blokey quest stories but that was literally me and a mate in a pub and he said you should do a big beer journey and i said oh there aren't any big beer journeys because beer doesn't travel oh hang on (laughs) and that was it there was the book fully formed in my head um and but the more i write the more i think well, I know that whatever idea I land on, I'm going to be able to do this approach, take this take this approach to it, and, it, and I'm going to come up with something nice. But what's the idea? And uh, with Pi Fidelity, it was it was an interesting one because it was that I, I I'm passionate about it because it was staring me in the face all along, um, and it was so it's my second book with with Penguin on in particular books, and you know when Penguin commissioned the Apple Orchard, which was a book previous to that, I felt like you know, my football team's Barnsley and I and I felt like a, a strike of a Barnsley being signed up by, you know, Liverpool or something. I thought I've made it, you know. Um being published by the only publisher that most people can name. And um and what was also brilliant is my editor there really saw the book inside the book and she saw me as a writer and said, No, 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 no. I don't want you going down that route. I want you to focus on this. I want you to focus on your personal journey, your experience, because that's where your writing shines. I was like, Great, okay. And we did the Apple Orchard and the first edit on that, she said, we love the book. The only thing is, it's called The Apple Orchard. I've just done a, a word count on it. The word cider is mentioned twice as often as the word apple. Do you think you can kind of rebalance <laughs> it a little bit? And so The Apple Orchard was great, and it got Book of the Week on Radio 4, and it won some awards and stuff. Um, but uh, afterwards, it's like, right, Pete, really like your writing, really like you, love working with you. What else have you got apart from beer and cider? 
<laughs> and I was like, right, okay. Uh, so just just let give it a rest on the alcoholic drinks for a little bit. What what if you wrote about something else that's nothing to do with beer or cider? And so I thought, oh, well, what else do I like? What else do I like? So what do I do when I'm not writing? What do I do when I'm not in the pub or thinking about beer? Well, there's my uh, there's my sourdough bread which I make, and I like doing that. And uh, my curries, you know, I like making curry and stuff. And there's uh, there's going out. I'm like, oh my god, I'm a foodie. And I realised that when I'm not concentrated on beer, I'm thinking about food. Mm. And the thing about British food is a rant that I've had for a very long time. Um, and it's very similar to my first book. A, a big thing about Man Walks Into a Pub was British pub culture and British beer styles are revered around the world. And we're the only people in the world who think that British beer is a bit shit. You know, we're the only country in the world where our national beer is not... A, a, a beer that was brewed in this country mm. you know if you go to America it's Budweiser you go to uh, France it's Cronenberg you go to Czech Republic it's Pilsner Urquell here it's either Cowling which is Canadian or Foster's which is Australian or you know yeah. um, and then when it came to thinking about food I thought well British food is exactly the same as that um, we're the only country in the world where if someone from another country goes your food's terrible we go yeah I know it is isn't it yeah it's terrible. It's awful, our food. And and even when people say, well, you know, London is such a vibrant place for for cult- for cuisine and food now. It's one of the best cities in the world to, to go out eating. It's like, because we've got so many different other ethnic cuisines here. Yeah, we've got we've got 98 different nationalities represented in the London uh, restaurant and food cart scene, uh, which is more than any other city apart from New York. And it's like, yeah, but what about traditional British food? Yeah, well, that's terrible, isn't it? It's like, no, it's not. Yes, there are terrible examples of it. You can get a revolting fish and chips in the centre, in the West End, in a tourist pub in the West End. But I've had terrible steak frites in the middle of Paris. I've had terrible pasta in the middle of Rome. You know, it's. But if you if you get a good Sunday roast or a good fish and chips, it's as good as anything else in the world. And why don't we champion that? So, so the idea was was there and came out of that really. When did you start writing it? I started writing the book knowing that I was writing that book uh, in uh, sort of spring 2016. Yeah, spring 2016. I only ask that, and and this is nothing to do with anything that I was meant to talk about. It's just hit a note. Was there at all a worry you writing a book about what makes a part of Britain so great? Did you have a worry about how that would go down in the current climate where there's this distinct idea that if you enjoy anything about being British, you're almost, you know, you're a Brexity nationalist, that kind of stuff. That became the first... I've got a uh, big book here. Actually, it must have been spring 2017 when I started it. I've got a big book here where, where when I'm struggling with a... Uh, That's right, you can, yeah. Yeah. When I'm struggling to come up with an idea, I start to sketch things out here. Um... Uh, this is 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 my post-it notes when they. In fact, this is this is high fidelity when I took it away uh, to finish writing it. Um, but back here, book idea, book idea, uh, book idea. Uh, something about patriotism, uh, the patriotic omnivore, gourmand, epicurean, and so the start of the book was trying to reclaim pride in your country and pride in your culture from the far right see if you can i be a progressive internationalist socialist pro-european person 
and say, I think Britain is brilliant at this stuff. Because those two, those two ideas really don't sit well together. No. But but they do sit well. They sit perfectly well together in most of the countries around the world. You know, I, I could be I could be a French radical socialist, pro EU, passionate internationalist, and say French cheese is the best in the world, and no one would bat an eyelid. If I if as a British person I say that, it's like, all right, Nigel, steady on. You know, <laughs> take the pint out of your hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, so you've got this big idea. Uh, th- this is what you want to do. You want to talk about what makes British food so great. Why have we lost that sense of our identity? It's a big idea. What happens day one? Where do you start your research? How do you start writing? Where does how does that idea become this big wall of post-it notes to my right? Yeah. So I mean, one of the things I love in the writing process, especially like one of the reasons I love about writing non-fiction was like, right, I'm going to write this, and then my the idea kind of it was missing. It was missing an element. It was missing a hook, and then that arrived on New Year's Day when we we're having a, a big Sunday roast with some friends and I and I looked at the meal and thought this meal is just such a brilliant meal and thought right I the, the structure of the book is nine meals uh and I go and I have the archetypal version of each of those meals and so then there's a there's a long list of about 20 different meals that gets whittled down to nine and every conversation I have is like, oh, you got you got toad in the hole in there, haven't you? No. That, <laughs> it, it was on the long list. It didn't make the short list. And everybody else's favorite foods seem to be on the long list, didn't make the short list. Um, but once I got those meals, it's like, right, then go on to Amazon first, but then on to a book, a books, secondhand book uh, aggregator. And I just bought like an entire shelf. I was just like, right, history of fish and chips, history of roast beef, history of uh, crumble. And, you know, you get more hits on some than others. And for a day, I just ordered books, secondhand books. And and that shelf just got populated with a whole new library of stuff on like food studies, the history of food in Britain, um, you know, food culture, uh, customs around food, uh, cheese and culture. Uh, the rituals of dinner, the story of Britain through its cooking. And so all those books just kind of end up piled in. <laughs> uh, and it's like, great. The first thing I'm doing is I'm reading through these and making all notes. And at the same time, I'm going to plan, where am I going to go? Where, where am I going to go for my one fish and chips meal? Where am I going to go for my one full English breakfast? Uh, so it took two routes like that. And I did one of my writing weeks. I went down to a, a, a caravan in West Wales the, on this particular occasion. And I thought, and I took, I took my pile of books with me, uh, and I thought, right, I'm going to read, get through as many of these books as I can in the next 10 days. And I said, first, though, I've just got some thoughts buzzing around my head. I'll just get those out and down on paper so I've captured my thoughts before I do all the reading and learn all the history. And a week later, I'd got 25,000 words of memoir. And I was like, where the hell did that come from? There was no mention of memoir in the proposal for the book. Uh, but I realized that when you talk to people about the meals that matter to them, you're talking to them about some very strong, incredibly strong memories, usually childhood memories or memories formed in adolescence. And mine were no different from, from anyone else's. And so in the end, about a quarter of the book was memoir. And the rest of it ended up getting structured around that. And it, al- it almost became, a not quite, but almost became a sort of autobiography through through food uh, about my my sort of early memories growing up in a poor working class community going to university and my horizons widening 
and getting involved in the food and drink industry and thinking, what am I doing here? What, what's all this about? And contrasting my desire to make my own kimchi and, <laughs> and my sourdough cultures in the fridge downstairs with my primal f- desire for a plate of fish and chips or a, or, or a burger. You know? <laughs> Sometimes I might have particular questions. Uh, like, you know, with the British pub, it was, why, why, why did we start, uh, why did we carry on drinking ale until the 1970s, 1980s, when everyone else in the world started drinking lager in the 1870s, 1880s? So sometimes it might be a question like that that I need the answer to. Other times I'm, I'm just looking for the thing that leaps off the page, the, the tidal wave of beer going, going down the middle of Oxford Street, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and stories that just unlock things for me and, and send me on journeys as well. So I might start with something in a book and then Google it and end up on a Wikipedia page. Um, and so, for example, what happened with Shakespeare's Local, I mentioned the Sugar Babes, was this question around when a building was built. You know, if you want to write a history of a pub, the first question is, when, when, was, when was it built then? Yeah. And the answer to that, is hugely more complex than, than you think it is. Uh, and so I, I remembered this thing about Trigger's broom from Only Fools and Horses, yeah. where Trigger's got this broom uh, and he, he, he gets accommodation from the council for using the same broom for 20 years. And, and they say, well, how did you keep it in such good condition for 20 years? And he goes, well, I changed the head five times and the handle three times. It's like, well, it's not the same broom, is it? Yes, it is. Look, here's a picture with me, with me with it 20 years ago. Uh, and then I remember the Sugar Babes had... A similar thing, you know, when when the three original Sugar Babes were no longer in the band, there's still a band called the Sugar Babes, which is a totally different band than it was. And then the three original members got back together as a different band, yeah. but they're not the Sugar Babes, even though they're the Sugar Babes. Yeah. <laughs> and and so the thing about the George Inn was, well, it was built, then it burnt down, then it got built again, and then it burnt down. And then the thing now is, it's like, well, the current building's been there since uh, 1676. It's like, no, it hasn't. That bit has, yeah. and that bit has. That fireplace has. These wooden beams here have, but that bit got replaced in 1830, and that bit got replaced in 1920. So is it the same pub, or is it not the same pub? Is it the same pub as it was in 1666? Is it the same pub uh, as it was before it got burned down in 1666? And and then I found out that, uh, this, that this conundrum goes right back to ancient Greece uh, and the paradox of Theseus' ship. And uh, and Aristotle <laughs> kind of uh, went through this paradox of if you've got a ship and the planks rot and you place all the planks, does does it yeah. is it the same ship or not? And then if you could build another facsimile of a ship from the old rotted plants, is that the original ship or the one that's had all the planks replaced? And so Aristotle solved this problem with. So I find myself talking about ancient Greek philosophy, starting with the question: How old is this pub? <laughs> I take in sugar paves, only fools and horses, <laughs> and ancient Greek philosophy to get to the answer. And and that's the kind of flight of fancy that I love. Not everyone does, I have to say. Uh, but th- that's that's what I'm looking for when I when I start reading. How did you solve the question? This is just for me, really. But it, it's an interesting one of identity, isn't it? Like, yes. who is that thing? What is that thing? What did you? How did you answer it? What, what so, did you so come Arist- Aristotle, Aristotle <coughs> posed, posited. Uh, these these four states of being, um, and I can't remember what they all are. But one is, is it made from the same materials as it used to be? Mm-hmm. Two is, is it uh, made to the same plan and design that it was? Three is something else, and four is, uh, does it have the same purpose uh, that, that it used to be? And so, if you so if you build a pub and it burns to the ground, 
and then you rebuild the pub to the same plan using the same materials it's being used for the same purpose and it's in the same place mm. then as far as aristotle's concerned the pub after it's been rebuilt is the same pub as the pub before it got burnt down what if it does all that but it's renamed that's a very good question i would then say it's a different pub and of course <laughs> what what everyone that's british knows about pubs the second thing you ask after when was it born was uh, did Dick Turpin go there? And the answer is almost immediately yes. It was the. It was, <laughs> they all say that, don't they? They all they say. They do. Yeah. Turpin, Dickens, and Orwell yeah. uh, visited every single pub <laughs> in the UK. And there's about ten that claim to be the oldest pub in the country. Yeah, I know it's crazy. But, but one of the joys, one of the joys of research, and this <coughs> this idea that you're just exploring and uh, and foraging and prospecting when you do research for a non-fiction book, the, the way that I write them, um, there's an amazing thing in the British Library now that uh, you can. Um, uh, they've got newspapers going back to 1600 uh, digitized uh, as PDFs and they're word searchable so uh, I, I found I first found this out when I was writing my book on IPA uh, and I typed into this database India PLL your search has turned 16,000 hits uh, and I spent days just going most of them classified ads in newspapers but you learn things from the classified ads and so I typed in George in Southwark uh, and one of the first hits I got was a newspaper from 1737 and I got the whole front page up and there was a story about uh, a dead baby being found in a ditch uh, behind the George Inn. It was a very sad story. Um, but the thing about that was it was the middle of the gin craze. And uh, women who would, uh, would go into prostitution to, to get the money to pay for gin, if they got pregnant, they would basically murder or abandon the babies, which is why the Coronsfield Hospital was set up to, to, to kind of save a lot of the lives of these, these babies and, and so on. So, that, so there's an interesting story in and of itself. And was the George ever used as a brothel? Uh, possibly, possibly not, but certainly all the other pubs along the bank side were, were brothels. Um, and then, so I then looked at the front page, and above that story was a story about Dick Turpin uh, holding up uh, a coachload of of, of, of travellers. And it wasn't travellers from the George. Um, there was no link to the George there. But I imagined sitting in the coffee room in the George that morning, about to get on a stagecoach, reading the story about Dick Turpin holding up a stagecoach and sitting there going, well, I'm getting on a stagecoach in two hours. I wonder if we'll get held up. And suddenly I had this picture of this place in 1737 that morning when you're reading that story and, 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 and an, an anonymous patron just kind of turning the page going, Oh, that's a sad story about the dead baby, but Turpin, he's at large. So, and, and suddenly you're there, you're there in that period. And that's a key part of the stories that you are telling in the books that you're writing. They need to transport me into a place, into a time, into an atmosphere, be that in the past, be that, you know, halfway to India, carrying a keg of beer. Um, and that's all to do with tone and language and the yes. voice that you are telling the story with. How much thought do you give to the, the voice that you are telling the story with, the actual words that are on the page? That's the aspect of writing that's really surprised me. Uh, when a rope man walks into a pub, which I struggle to read these days if I, if I pick it up, I'm so embarrassed by it. Um, and I thought, well, I'm writing this because I'm a fluent writer. I can put words together in the right order. I'm an engaging, readable writer. My, my prose style is quite simple. But I'm never going to be a writer-writer. Um, and then around the time of 
Hops and Glory, my prose started to become a lot more lyrical because the, just the things I saw were were amazing, and I was looking for words to help describe them. And the biggest surprise for me has been my development, the development of my tone of voice, because uh, it's still simple and readable. People still say to me, "Oh, reading your book is just like talking to you." It's like, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> you know, transcribe my speech, and you'll see how different <laughs> it is. But it's good that people think that. Um, but but yeah, I I. I spend a lot of time again back back to the advertising uh, thing. I spend a lot of time thinking about tone of voice. It, it's a key it's a key aspect on an advertising brief for an ad. You know, do we do we want this ad to be funny or serious? Do we want it to be uh, do we want do we want this brand to come across as your best mate or your bank manager or your dad? You know, who what 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 what's the personality? Uh, and so I do think about that all the time. And then I'm influenced by other writers who I read who I'm deeply impressed by. So. Uh, Central for me is Orwell, um, just the front and center of everything. Just the the precision and the economy of of words. Is, I was going to say something I've learned. It's something I will carry on learning till till the day till the day I die, basically. Uh, and just the simplicity and clarity of ideas. I want people. I don't want to impress people with how clever I am as a writer. I want people to get what I'm talking about instantly, and I want them to like it. I want to be engaged by it and inspired by it. Uh, and I want to make them laugh. And I want to make them interested. Uh, and something a lot of people have said about my writing is, is when you read, it's almost like learning by stealth. You, you, you know, you're with me on my hapless journey as I'm pratfalling all over the place and stuff like that. And you get to the end and go, hang on a minute, I've just learned a shit ton about uh, uh, the, the, the East India Company in, <laughs> in, the, in the early 19th century, you know. Uh, and so that's how I like to try and do it. I, I, as a writer, I want to be liked. Um, uh, I want people. I want people to go. Oh, he's a, he'd be a brilliant bloke to spend time with. Um, but I also want. I want to be clever, but I don't want to wear it heavily. I want to wear it lightly. So that's kind of my guiding principle. And that is it for this week's writer's routine. Thank you so much to Pete uh, for having me over, letting me see his writer's routine, giving me the full tour, and sparing the time in his busy morning uh, to chat things through. You can get, you can find everything you need to know about Pete and his newest book, Pi Fidelity, over on our new and improved website, which is writersroutine.com. New and improving, I should say. Still a work in progress. Bear with it, please. While you're there, uh, you can get in touch. Use the contact form at writersroutine.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, maybe you picked up some tips that will help you in the way that you write and tell your stories. Uh, I'd love for you to just say thanks uh, by pledging whatever you can over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. Give us a follow on Twitter at writerspod. Uh, Make sure you leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store as well. And I'll see you next week where we are chatting to the historical mystery author S.D. Sykes. It's on the way on Writer's Routine. I'll see you then. Bye. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 